Hello and welcome back, Scoliosis Dialogue listeners. Um, Thank you for joining us for our episode today. Uh, For today's episode, the SRS podcast team scoured the May issue of Spine Deformity Journal, and we chose some really interesting articles um, to uh, determine which one would rise to the top uh, and uh, be the... uh, corresponding author that we would interview for this episode. Um, It was really hard. Uh, This issue has a lot of articles, a lot of really interesting articles. Um, But after much discussion, some argument, maybe a little bit of fisticuffs, uh, we uh, all decided that we would uh, interview uh, Dr. Scott Lumen. And so today I have the privilege of uh, talking to Dr. Lumen. And just a quick note, um, if our listeners have any suggestions for future articles or future authors to cover, um, please let us know uh, via all of the social media or, or email um, our uh, SRS podcast team directly. Um, but without uh, further ado, I'd, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lumen to our podcast. Hello. Uh, thanks for inviting me to uh, talk. Thank you for, for joining us. I know you're, you're a really busy uh, surgeon and researcher, and uh, it's great you're able to find the time. Um, one thing I like to ask uh, our, our researchers and our surgeons when they come on this podcast is I'd, I'd like to know your journey of how you became a spine deformity surgeon. Uh, some people's lives are rather uh, a straightforward line. I can't say that I've been that way. I've been a little bit circuitous uh, the way I've uh, gotten to where I am today. Uh, you know, like a lot of people, you start out doing orthopedics and you have that interest. And I got lured into the field of pediatric orthopedics by Perry Schenecker, who is uh, well known across uh, Pozna, at least. He's a, a wonderful surgeon, a grant and a father-like figure to me. And then uh, I got under the wing of Larry Lenke, um, who was with us at WashU for many years and before we went to New York. And so I had the opportunity to work with one of the, in my mind, one of the best spinal formula surgeons in the world, who I consider a friend and a colleague and, a, and definitely a mentor to me. Uh, so he's been someone who's been heavily um, influ- influential in my life. And uh, I had the opportunity to see someone operate at a very high level and, and to be an incredibly successful researcher and clinician and educator. So uh, I, it was easy to emulate someone that I think so highly of. That's awesome. And that's a theme I hear often from um, some of the awesome surgeons and researchers that we, we interview here, that it's the, the importance of mentorship, um, finding someone like Dr. Lenke or Dr. Schenecker um, along your path that are during training and beyond um, who really inspires you to follow in their footsteps. So um, I one thing I, I love about doing this podcast is I, I hope that these people who are wonderful mentors are, are listening um, and, mm-hmm. and and they know how much um, that you and, and everyone else appreciates them. So it's it's cool that we get uh, to allow people to do do almost shout outs. <laughs> and, and and you, Dr. Lumen, I know you've been a mentor to a lot of, of surgeons as well. So I, I hope I hope they tell you that um, <laughs> and that and that you know how much you are appreciated. Thank um, you. Cool. Um, and, and along the lines of, um, you know, kind of being a role model as, as a professional, as a surgeon and a researcher, um, I, I wanted to ask you, how do you have time to do so much research while still maintaining a busy clinical practice and, and you know, having a family? It, it's a challenge, let me tell you, is uh, the, the life work you know, professional balances with your personal life can be very, very difficult. And I've been very uh, 
blessed to have a wife who it was an academic doctor at St. Louis Children's PH and Brinster Room. And so she understands the demands uh, of an academic career, uh, but also an individual who was very dedicated to family. So I had someone who was a partner with me in the journey uh, who uh, understood why in my kids after time, you know, you know how I had to leave to go take care of a child and they understood that I was helping someone. So, you know, it, it's a family that helps a lot with that and understanding that we have demands in our time, which are sometimes outside of our control. And so that gives you a lot of ground and, and a lot of stability in your life. Uh, I'm also happen to be, as I mentioned, you know, under the uh, influence of Perry Schenneker and Larry Lenke and being at WashU has been something where uh, there's a lot of individuals who um, love to collaborate and work together. So finding people to work with who share the passion and energy uh, to, to investigate projects, to work on things um, is infectious. So it makes it sometimes easy to do research. Um, though, as you know, most of this research for a busy clinician happens uh, on the evenings and the weekends or between cases as you're doing today, uh, this uh, podcast, uh, it, it takes a lot of organization. You take to have a team around you. Certainly it's not just me. I have individuals who work with me in research coordination, students, fellows, residents. Uh, it's, it's a big team. And anybody who's done a lot of research uh, is simply the person who's the lead person a lot of times. And there's a, a whole multitude of very skilled, passionate individuals who are not sharing the, the limelight, so to speak speak with us, who are hugely important in the success of um, each of us who happen to be able to get up to the podium or do a publication. Yeah, so it, it really takes a village to raise a child, also raise an academic career. Right, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. Well, that's that's great. And that's, it's, it's, I'm, I'm so glad you're in such a wonderful, supportive environment um, with your family and, and also the institution. Um, and, and I'm sure those... Uh, Folks, if, if they happen to be listening to this, I, I, uh, I, I hope that um, they understand how much you appreciate them. So that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. okay. um, uh, moving on to, to talking about this specific paper. Um, so uh, Dr. Lemon, you actually had two papers in this uh, spine deformity issue, uh, but because we, we limit the amount of time for each podcast, we only have time to talk about one. Uh, okay. So that was part of the discussion too. Which one of Dr. Lumen's papers are we gonna talk about? But eventually uh, we decided uh, to uh, discuss um, the natural history of curved behavior after brace removal in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, a literature mm -hmm. review. Um, so thank you for your contribution to your our, our, our journal. Um, mm -hmm. And um, if you don't mind, can you give just a quick journal club summary of this paper? Sure. So uh, this was a project uh, born out of a clinical question, which we all have is, what happens to our patients after we brace them for idiopathic scoliosis? So uh, the person, by the way, I want to shout out is Daphne, who's the second author of the paper, who did the, the lion's share. She did a lot of lift on this, and I give her lots of credit for doing this. And she was the glue that kept this paper and project moving forward. But what we did was a systematic literature search uh, using Medline or PubMed, uh, looking back in the neighborhood about 30 years, um, finding about 75 studies, but really only include about 18, and looking at that group of individuals individuals that um, you search them for bracing, AIS, and then weaning or removal of the brace had to have a certain size, one of more than 15 patients, more than a year follow-up. Um, and like a lot of literature, you end up weaving down 
from 75 to 18 very quickly because you recognize the fact that um, that the variances of how the projects were carried out, their length of follow-up, how they did the project, um, starts to limit them a little bit with um, how you could pull them into something like this where you're trying to create more of an, a, a global perspective of what happens to these kids afterwards. Um, and it, it, it's a project that took a lot of a lot of reading and a lot of work to put this together. I see. How did you feel about the overall quality of the existing literature on, on this subject? <laughs> well, this was the uh, second type of a, a you know, real kind of a deep dive into the literature on a subject that I did. The other one I did was with the AOS looking at femur fractures, looking at the quality of evidence, trying to come up with the guidelines. And it sometimes is dismaying to look at that we don't have a lot of type one and type two evidence out there to support some of our clinical decision making. And, and this is certainly the case here. Uh, we have a difficulty historically in um, looking outside of our institutions to create databases for bracing. And every one of us has put together our own experience. And so the variability between institutions, the length of follow-up, all the little criteria that each of us use and um, when to do it, how to do it, what to do, how long to wear it, what's the follow-up is very different. And, and the outcomes are highly variable too. And so it makes it really difficult to be able to coalesce that down into a cohesive you know, statement after reviewing all of that, because there's always little holes in everybody's projects um, and that happen. We all have weaknesses in everything that we publish and it makes it very, very difficult. So, um, you know, hopefully some of these databases that we're working with uh, will be able to overcome some of this and create more cohesive, um, uh, larger populations with better outcomes, better indications to help us more. But it, it is a little bit uh, disappointing. Uh, you hope that you'd have some bigger information that you could uh, really kind of come to some firm decisions um, and, and thoughts of, but it, it just wasn't that way. And, and, and I, I see that getting better as time moves forward, but it's a little challenging looking back at published literature. Yeah, and I know a lot of folks share your frustration. Um, and and yeah, we, we hope that the databases will, will improve the data that we gather. Certainly some of the other fields in medicine have been doing this for a lot longer. I mean, internal medicine, they have databases that span decades. Um, yeah. So hopefully orthopedic surgery will, uh, will, will get there too. Although our conditions have some unique limitations as well in terms of, of kind of long-term follow-up but uh, right. yeah that's 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 the hope um one of the things that i did notice in your paper and uh that kind of follows with what you've you've been saying is that in the variability among these articles um one thing i noticed is that the brace weaning criteria which is listed in your uh, table one for for all of the studies is a little different from study to study mm -hmm. what do you what are your thoughts on that well, I think you have to look back to the fact that if we knew, look back 30 years, we were pretty much using um, menstrual history, we're using RISR sign, we're using some uh, 
measures of skeletal maturity, which are, uh, let's say the standard deviation is high around from when peak height velocity or uh, the pubic growth spurt occurs. And it wasn't until Jim Sanders really kind of brought it together with the Sanders classification that really was able to give us a better idea of those early phases, because when the Risser sign hits, it's already, we're past that real important time period. So Jim's classification kind of peels it back a few years to give us an idea of when this is actually happening. And I think that is really the important thing for us is that we didn't have as good an idea of when the pubertal growth spurt was and, and how we start deciding when to stop it. And we had an, a, a method here at WashU about, you know, there's no documented further growth. We had, you know, we essentially ERISA 4 and, you know, two years post articles when we're going to stop bracing. Now, as we look at this, um, I, I really think that we're getting recent literature saying that probably when you get to the Sanders 7B is when we start talking about we should um, start weaning or could wean off. Um, that might actually be early though too um, for some individuals a little bit. So I, I probably lean a little bit past that just a little bit just because I'm trying to minimize uh, any type of further progression, especially for those curbs which are approaching the um, what we call potential surgical indications. I see. So, so in your personal practice, you use the Sanders classification, but go yes. a little bit past seven B. Yeah, I try to. You know, obviously, to me, it depends on this magnitude of deformity. If you're dealing with the 25 degree curve, that's a lot different than dealing with a 40 degree curve because if a 25 degree curve progresses uh, five, six degrees after brace weaning, uh, that's not as big of an implication on the person's appearance or function or pain long term as it would be if you have a 40 degree curve, which then inches into almost 50, and you start getting towards those are the curves which could be more progressive, more. Um, altering of their body habitus and, and causing pain long term. So there's a little bit different. I, I probably push them a little bit longer in that older or the uh, larger magnitude curves than I do on the smaller ones. And that's great. And that's one of the really great takeaways I, I took from your um, lit review as well, uh, that, you know, the smaller curves near the end of um, when you would typically stop bracing them, you probably, you know, they don't seem to progress all that much, but those bigger curves, um, those are probably the ones where we, we, we push the, the uh, teenager to just wear the brace a little bit longer and try right. to reinforce it's not forever, but because your curve is a little bit bigger towards, you know, it's getting closer to 50 degrees. Let's just, just hang on a, a little bit longer, please, please, please. Right. No, I, I agree. It's, it's that under, if you can get them under 25 and they can at the end and you know, this again, I think reinforces to me the efficacy of a bracing, number one, but number two, it's the importance of, of wearing the brace, of getting a well-fitting brace, and us as providers supporting the family and being, I always, I, they always jokingly talk to the kids and say, I'm like the cheerleader. I'm just cheering you on with the orthotist, um, encouraging you to wear the brace, because I think there's uh, a lot of positive evidence in the literature that says, if you wear it, you wear it well, uh, and we can keep the curb down, the impact on you long-term is gonna be 
less than those larger curves, um, you know, more than 25 degrees, which is hard. I mean, it, it, let's face it, bracing is not easy. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard a child or adolescent say, boy, I, I love my brace. You just, they, they just, they just tolerate it and they put up with the surgeon, uh, uh, orthotists and the parents uh, encouraging them. Uh, but you're right. You just got to say it's not forever. It's just now I need you to wear it. Yeah, and I'd like to take this opportunity for any of the patients or parents of patients that are out there that are listening to our podcast and that are going through bracing, like keep up the good fight. Um, you know, this is, <laughs> <laughs> we know it's hard. We appreciate your effort, um, but, but please keep it up. Um, I so. totally, totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing uh, about your paper um, that I had a question about was, you know, you, you, you quantify the amount of progression that happens after uh, bracing is weaned um, and you have a few different time periods. Um, how, off, how, how long do you follow patients for um, after they've reached skeletal maturity? Some of that again varies on the magnitude of the deformity. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, with those those individuals who you've braced and have a very low magnitude curve, um, we'll follow them for a couple of years uh, to make sure that we don't see any changes. And the other thing, which is often a hidden um, issue about bracing, is that it has a tendency to make them core weak. And at the other thing that happens in adolescence is that, you know, that, that pyramid of activities in high school and junior high school is that fewer and fewer kids are participating in athletics. So they get more deconditioned, they get more fatigued. And I think that really increases the risk of them having, you know, upper back and lower back pain because they're deconditioned. And so I think it's important after even for low magnitude curves um, to really focus in on getting them back to their baseline and their fitness. Um, they're so tired, my patients are so tired of me telling them, you know, I want you to get out there, find an activity you like to do, work, do uh, uh, every other day for 20 to 30 minutes, raise your heart rate, break a sweat, get conditioned. And so that's part of the follow-up is making sure that you get them from that kind of deconditioned brace user to more of a normal uh, individual who has a better overall fitness, who you think is more prepared to become, you know, an adult uh, with that mild scoliosis. So that's that's that group specifically, but also it applies to all of them. But the, the larger magnitude curves, we'll keep watching them over time. Um, and I think the important thing is to, at some point, you're going to have to make the decision you're done watching them. I like to get them through two or three or four years of watching that kind of moderate to larger curve to see what happens. I have been uh, at times surprised to see that some of these curves in my own clinical practice have progressed more than I would have anticipated. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important to make sure that you've gotten them through that that first, that obviously the brace wear initial that you tame up, which you talked about seven degrees in this paper, but then that second period, which is up to about five years after bracing, that there is some more progression. And then after five years, it doesn't seem to progress very quickly and it was like a 0.2 degrees per year. So if you can get them to that kind of time period that you're getting to three, four years after bracing, then you come down to having those life discussions with everybody. It's saying, you know, are you happy with how things are? How are things, you know, how do you feel uh, about your back and your pain and how can, how are your activities? Uh, are you happy with those? Um, or you're not happy. Uh, so, just because we get someone to a 45, you know, 40, 45 degree curve and we say, well, that's surgical indications, 
they can be very problematic for some individuals at that point. Um, so you have to have a lot of discussions, I think, as you move forward with them. So, you know, it, it varies two to five years behind the magnitude and the, and the location of the deformity. See. For some of the kids that were reading off bracing, you know, they're in their later teens, especially some of the boys as they reach skeletal maturity a little later. How do you handle the transition for when they have to leave the peds hospital system uh, to kind of transitioning care to maybe an adult spine surgeon or some other practitioner um, if they're still going to be within that, you know, follow up period? Well, the nice thing is, uh, you know, I work at two hospitals. So I work at St. Shriners Hospital in St. Louis, and then I also work at the St. Louis Children's. So we have the ability to kind of extend um, the care of our kids up to 21 years of age um, at Shriners so I can watch them. And at St. Louis Children's, I really don't have a limitation. I, I tell them all, I'm happy to see them um, if at the Children's Hospital, if they don't mind coming to a hospital that has kitty cats and bunny rabbits on the walls. Um, I, I will see them as long as they want to come and see me. Um, and if, if it gets to be that they're much older, I have a wonderful group uh, of surgeons in our department who uh, do adult spinal deformity who um, will see them also. If they're getting 10, 15 years down the road, um, that's where they would go. But I always offer that I will see them in perpetuity as long as they want to keep coming to see me. I'm happy to see them. That's great. That's great. Um, along the lines of transitioning, we are getting close to uh, our time limit for this episode. Um, but um, I had a wonderful time talking with you, Dr. Lemon. Thank you so much for making the time to uh, you know, talk to us about uh, this super important topic. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you and your co-authors decided to take a clinical question that so many of us who treat scoliosis have, but then to, to try to systematically look through all the, the literature and the data that's available out there to, to give us some answers on, on whether what we're doing is right or what, what should we be changing. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing this podcast, which I think is a very great platform um, to get information out. And uh, again, you know, this is a this is something that a lot of us have to handle uh, uh, in our practice. And uh, I think this is also a good um, point to say, please, we need to do good non-operative research on this group of patients because not many of them go to surgery, but a lot of them get very impacted long-term. So I think this is a, as you said, it, it's a it's a call to do more effective, high quality research in this area. Awesome. All right, thank you everyone for, for listening um, and we'll catch you uh, during our next episode that'll come out in a couple of weeks. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information. 